is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Um, just a heads up, I'll be switching times to Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. starting next week, so if you listen to me now, remember to catch me then. Uh, today, I'll be reading two short stories, First Communion by Jane Roberts and The Last Gentleman by Rory McGill, a pseudonym of Dorothea McGill Faulkner. Tonight, I'll focus on electronic music from the 60s. I'm going to start by playing some early kind of drone music. Right now, in the background, we have What by folk Rob, which came out in 1967. Uh, Rob was a Swedish composer who studied in Stockholm with musicians like Carl uh, Berger, Blumda, Igvar Lidholm, and uh, Ligeti. Uh, I've definitely played some Ligeti on this show before, particularly Atmospheres, which is an orchestral work which exploited what he called micro polyphonic textures and had a similar drone-like feel even though it was actually created by like an orchestra and like the first note is like 57 like the first sound is like 57 notes from 57 instruments but anyway that's not what we're listening to right now we're listening to what by uh folk rabbit um what creates textures using electronics instead of an orchestra so the version we're listening to right now is the original piece being played at half speed. So like they, for one thing, it took them a while to release it. Like he composed this piece in uh, 1967 and he created it, but it wasn't um, actually released on vinyl until a couple years later. And then years later after that, they did a re-release of it with the original piece and this piece, which is the original piece played at um, two times. So I think it actually gives it a kind of more of this like atmosphere kind of draws out the notes and creates more interesting sounds by having it be played at two times so okay uh so stories for today uh we're going to start with dorothea mcgill faulkner's the last gentleman which was first published in if january of 1953 and I'll tell you a little bit of, about uh, Dorothea Faulkner in a couple minutes. And then after that, I'll read the story. So hang in there. This is Books and Bombs with Ray Guns. I'm Hannah Wolf, and we're going to tell you a little bit about 
Dorothea McGill Faulkner, and then I'll be reading a story by her. So, a little bit about Dottie, as she went by to by her friends, or Grandma the Demon, which is which was a pseudonym that she used in fanzines. She also went under Rory McGill, which was a uh, pseudonym she went under for this story. Uh, in some of her poetry, she went under uh, Rory Faulkner. So, uh, depends on what you're reading. Uh, she was active in the L.A. Science Fantasy Society and Outlander, Sci- Outlander Society in the late 1940s, and she sometimes co-edited the club fan magazine Shangri-La. Uh, She published both short stories and poems, her first poem in 1950 at age 61. And most of these uh, poems that she was publishing were in these fanzines. The stories, though, she published two short stories, um, and they were both actually published in more mainstream science fiction journals. Anyway... Um, I'll read a couple quotes about her, because I like quotes. So, let's see. Len Moffat said she was intelligent, well-read, opinionated, and articulate. She was fun to be with, to talk with, even if you might not agree with her right-wing politics. Uh, She carried on correspondence with quite a few uh, editors, uh, John W. Campbell, Eric Frank Russell, and sci-fi author Robert Heinlein. She was a widow of a naval officer and had at least one daughter, whom I, Moffat, only met once or twice. She was as independent as a hog on ice and an outstanding storyteller and limerick writer. Um, there's also a excerpt I have an excerpt from a uh, so as I've mentioned before a lot of times in these science fiction uh, magazines they would get like letters to the editor so it's almost like a, a message board or comment board that would be published in these magazines so in the fall issue of ni- the fall 1955 issue of startling stories um she complained about the demise of thrilling wonder stories and fantastic story and she said is this a sign of the decline and fall of science fiction i hope not for what am i going to read then i don't like slick magazines love stories and i'm fed to the teeth with murder mysteries in sheer self-defense i have gone back to the beginning of my science fiction collection and have been reading old ones over again so she was worried that when actually in the mid 50s there was kind of early 50s there was this boom of science fiction magazines and then mid to late 60s there was a decline because there were just too many magazines so she's complaining about a lot of these um, closing and just a little bit that she said about herself um, that this was Uh, She said, since I'm now 66, it seems likely I'll get my wish to see space stations launched and the first moon flight. I hope I can last out till they hit Mars, too. Also, I'd like to see Halley's Comet again. I remember it well from 1910. So she was born in 1889, and 
At least that's the estimate from some of her writings. And honestly, I assume that she's dead, but there's no information about like when she died. So, next I will be reading The Last Gentleman by Rory McGill. It'll take a second to get ready for that. Gentlemen by Rory McGill. This was first published in Worlds of If, January 1953. No one knew, no one cared, for a great lethargy was overcoming the people, and their only salvation was dot dot dot. The Last Gentleman by Rory McGill. The explosion brought Jim Peters upright in bed. He sat there, leaning back on the heels of his hands, blinking stupidly at the wall. His vision cleared, and he looked down at Myra, just stirring beside him. Myra opened her eyes. Jim said, Did you feel that? Myra yawned. I thought I was dreaming. It was an explosion or something, wasn't it? Jim's lips set grimly. After ten years of Cold War, there was only one appropriate observation, and he made it. I guess maybe this is it. As by common agreement, they got out of bed and pulled on their robes. They went downstairs and out into the warm summer night. Other people had come out of their homes also. Shadowy figures moved and collected in the darkness. Sounded right on top of us. I was looking out the window, didn't see no flash. Must have been further away than it seemed. This last was spoken hopefully and reflected the mood of all the people. Maybe it wasn't the bomb after all. Oddly, no one had thought to consult a radio. The thought struck them as a group and they broke into a single and double unit's again, hurrying back into the houses. Lights began coming on here and there. Jim Peters took Myra's hand unconsciously as they hurried up the porch steps. Hugh would know, Jim said. I kind of wish Hugh was here. Myra laughed lightly, a calculated laugh meant to disguise the gravity of the terrible thing. That's not very patriotic, Jim. If that was the bomb, Hugh will be kept busy making other bombs to send back to them. But he'd know. I bet he could tell just by the sound of it. Jim smiled quietly in the darkness, proudly. It wasn't everyone who had a genius brother. A nuclear scientist didn't happen in every family. 
Hugh was somebody to be proud of. They turned on the radio and sat huddled in front of it. The tombs warmed with maddening slowness. Then there came a deliberate, impersonal voice of the announcer. On the strength of reports now in, it appears the enemy bungled badly. Instead of crippling the nation, they succeeded only in alerting it. The bombs at this time, there appear to have been five of them dropped, formed a straight north-south line across western United States. One destination closer to the Idaho-Utah line. The other four were placed at almost equidistant points to the south, the fifth bomb, according to the first reports. Exploded in a Mexican desert. We have been informed that Calus, Utah, a town of 900 persons, has been completely annihilated. For further reports, keep tuned to this station. A dancing band cut in. Jim got up from his chair. They certainly did bungle, he said. Imagine wasting four atomic bombs like that. Myra got up also. Would you like some coffee? That'd be a good idea. I don't feel like going back to bed. I want to listen for more reports. But there were no more reports. An hour passed. Another and another. Jim spun the dials and got either silence or the cheerful blathering of some inane disc jockey who prattled on as though nothing had happened. Finally, Jim snapped the set off. Censorship, he said. Now we're going to see what it's really like. In the morning, they gathered again in groups, the villagers in this little community of 500, and discussed the shape of things to come, and they visualized them. It'll take a little time to get into action, old Sam Bennett said, even expecting it. And with how fast things move these days, it'll take time. If they invade us, come down from the north, you think their government will let us know they're coming? You can't tell censorship is a funny thing. In the last war, we knew more about what was going on in Europe than the people that lived there. At that moment, old Mrs. Kindle fainted dead away and had to be carried home. Three men carried her, and Tom Edwards was one of them. Kind of heavy, ain't she? Tom said. I never thought Mary weighed much more than a hundred. That night, the village shook. In his home, Jim staggered against the wall. Myra fell to the floor. There were two tremors, the second worse than the first. Then things steadied away, and he helped Myra to her feet. But there wasn't any noise, Myra whispered. The whisper was loud in the silence. That was an earthquake, Jim said. Nothing to worry about. Might be one of the bomb's after effects. The quake did no great damage in the village, but it possibly contributed to old Mrs. Kendall's death. She passed on an hour later. Poor old lady, a neighbor told Myra. She was 
Plain weary. That was what she said just before she closed her eyes. Hazel, she said, I'm just plum tuckered. The neighbor wiped her face with her apron and turned towards home. Think I'll lie down for a spell. I'm tuckered myself. Can't take a thing like I used to. Now, it was weeks after the earthquake, two weeks after the falling of the bombs, and the town went on living. But it was strange, very strange. Art Cordell voiced the general opinion when he said, You know, we waited a long time for the thing to happen. We kind of visualized maybe how it'd be, but I didn't figure it'd be anything like this. Maybe there isn't any war, Jim said. Washington hasn't said anything. Censorship. But isn't that carrying censorship a little too far? The people ought to be told whether or not they're at war. But people didn't seem to care. A deadening lethargy had settled over them. A lethargy that felt and questioned in their own minds, but didn't talk about much talking itself seemed to have become an effort. This continued weariness, this dragging of one foot after another, was evidently the result of radiation from the bombs. What other place could it come from? The radiation got blamed for just about everything. Untoward that happened. It caused Jenkins' apple to fall before they were half ripe. Something about it bent the young wheat to the ground where it mildewed and rotted. Some even blamed the radiation for the premature birth of Jane Elman's baby, even though such a thing had happened before even gunpowder was invented. But it certainly was a strange war. Nothing came over the radio at all. Nobody seemed to care, really, probably because they were just plain too tired. Jim Peters dragged himself to and from work in a sort of daze. Myra got her housework done, but it was a greater effort every day. All she could think of was the times she could drop on the lounge for a rest. She didn't care much whether a war was going on or not. People had quit waiting for them to come down from the north. They knew that the places where the bombs had fallen were guarded like Fort Knox. Nobody go in or out. Jim remembered the flash, the color, the rumors, the excitement of World War II, the grim resolution of the people to buckle down and win it. Depots jammed, kids going off to join. But nobody went to join this war. That was funny. Somehow Jim hadn't thought of that before. None of the kids were being called up. Did they have enough men? Washington didn't say. Washington didn't say anything. And the people didn't seem to care. That was the strange thing, when you could get your tired mind to focus on it. The people didn't care. 
They were too busily occupied with the grim business of putting one foot in front of the other. Jim got home one evening to find Myra staring dully at a small handful of ground meat. That's a pound, she said. Jim frowned. What do you mean? That's a little bit. Myra nodded. I asked for a pound of hamburger and Art put that much on the scale. In fact, not even that much. It said a pound. I saw it. But there was such a little bit that he felt guilty and put some more on. Jim turned away. I'm not hungry anyhow, he said. At ten that night, after they were in bed, a knocking sounded on the door. They had been in bed for three hours because all they could think of as soon as they had eaten was getting into bed and staying there until the last possible minute on the following morning. But the knock came and Jim went down. He called back upstairs with more life than he had shown in a long time. Myra, come down. It's Hugh. Hugh's come to see us. And Myra came down quickly, something she hadn't done for a long time either. Hugh seemed weary and drawn, but his smile was the same. Hugh hadn't changed a great deal from the gangling kid who never studied mathematics in school but always had the answers. It came naturally to him. During the coffee that Myra made, Hugh said, Had quite a time getting here. Trains disrupted. All airlines grounded. But I wanted to see you again before... Then there is a war, Jim said. We've been kind of wondering out here. With the censorship, we don't get any news, and the people hereabouts have almost forgotten the bombs, I guess. Hugh stared into his coffee cup for a long time. No, there isn't any war, Hugh grinned wryly. I don't think anybody in the world has gotten enough energy left to fight one. There was one, then? One that's over? Jim felt suddenly like a fool, sitting here on a world that might have gone through a war stretching from pole to pole and asking if it had happened as though he lived on Mars somewhere, out of touch. But that's the way it was. No, there wasn't any war. You mean our government shot off those bombs themselves? You know, I thought it was funny, landing out in the desert that way like they did. Old Joe would have hit for Chicago or Detroit or New York. It was silly to say the bombs dropped off on the desert came from the enemy. No, the government didn't fire them. Myra set her cup down. Jim, stop asking Hugh so many questions. He's tired. He's come a long way. The questions can wait. Yes, I guess they can. Well, show you where your room is, Hugh. And she opened the window of the spare bedroom. Myra stood for a moment looking out. Moon's certainly pretty tonight. So big and yellow. Wish I wasn't too tired to enjoy it. They went to bed then, in the quiet home under the big yellow moon over the quiet town. 
A moon over a quiet country, over a weary, waiting world. Jim didn't go to work the next day. He hadn't planned to stay away from work. But he and Myra awoke very late, and it was then that he made up his mind. For a long time, they lay in bed, not even the thought of Hugh being around and all the things that they wanted to talk about could bring them out of bed until they felt guilty about not getting up. Hugh was sitting on the front porch watching the still trees in the yard. There was a breeze blowing, but it wasn't enough to move the leaves. Every leaf hung straight down, not stirring, and the grass seemed matted and bent towards the earth. Myra got breakfast. She dropped the skillet while transferring the eggs to a platter, but she got her foot out of the way, so no harm was done. After breakfast, the men went back outside. Jim moved automatically toward the chair. Then he stopped and frowned. He straightened deliberately. He turned and looked at his brother. He said, Hugh, you're a man that knows. What's wrong? What did those bombs do to us? Tell me, I've got to know. Hugh was silent for a time. Then he said, Feel up for a walk? Certainly, why not? They went to the edge of town and out into a pasture and stopped finally by a brook where the water flowed sluggishly. After a while, Hugh said, I'm not supposed to tell anyone anything, but somehow it doesn't seem decent keeping the truth from your own brother. And what difference does it make, really? What happened to you? There weren't any bombs. No bombs? It happened this way. Long before the Earth was formed, a million light years out in space, a white dwarf died violently. You're talking in riddles. I mean it. A white dwarf died violently. Hugh looked up into the sky. A dwarf star, Jim, so incredibly heavy, it would be hard for you to conceive of its weight. This star blew up, broke into five pieces, and the five pieces followed each other through space. The wor this world was formed in the meantime, maybe even this galaxy, we don't know. So the five pieces of heavy star had a rendezvous with a world unborn. The world was born and grew old, and then the rendezvous was kept, right on schedule. On some schedule so huge and ponderous we can't even begin to understand it. The five bombs? They hit Earth in a line and drove deep into the ground. But that was only the beginning. It all had to do with magnetism, the way they kept right on burrowing toward the center of our Earth, causing the earthquakes, causing apples to fall from trees. Hugh glanced at Jim. Did you know... You weigh around 600 pounds now? I haven't weighed myself lately. We checked and found out what the stuff was. 
We'd never seen anything like it before. That star was a real heavyweight, and the pieces are drawing together towards the center of the Earth. But they'll never get there. They won't? We're doomed, Jim. Earth is doomed. That's why, of this censorship, we didn't want panics, mass suicide, a world gone mad. How's it going to come? If it's allowed to run its course, the world would come to a complete standstill. Nothing would grow. People would move slower and slower until they finally fell in their tracks and could not get up. Eternal night on one side of a dead planet. Eternal day on the other. But it's not going to happen then? Hugh's mind went off on another track. You know, Jim... I've never been a religious man. In fact, I only had one concept of God. I believe that God, above all, is a gentleman. Jim said nothing, and after a moment, Hugh went on. Do you know what they do when they execute a man by firing squad? What do they do? After the squad fires its volley, the captain steps up to the fallen man and puts a bullet through his brain. The man is executed for a reason, but the bullet is an act of mercy, the act of a gentleman. We are being executed for a reason we can't understand, and the bullet has already been fired, Jim. Another ten hours, eleven hours. What bullet? Look up there, see it? The moon. Jim looked dully into the sky. It's bigger, way bigger. Hurtling in towards us at an ever-increasing speed, when it hits... Jim looked at his brother with complete understanding at last. When it hits, we won't be here anymore. That's right, a quick, easy death for the world from the bullet fired by the last man. They turned back toward the house. Shall I tell Myra? Jim asked. What do you think you should do? No, we won't tell her. We've got ten hours. Yes, we've got ten hours. Let's go home and have some coffee. The end. That was The Last Gentleman by Rory McGill, which was first published in World of If, January 1953. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. I'll take a second break and then maybe we'll get on to our next story.
This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Next, I'll be reading Jane Roberts' short story, The First Communion, which was first published in Fantastic Universe, March of 1957. So, I thought we'd start with a little bit about Jane Roberts. Um, so I think, like, she's a really interesting woman. Can I say that? Uh, she was born in 1929, um... She had a tumultuous childhood. After her parents divorced, she and her mother moved in with her grandparents. Her grandmother died when she was 17, and her grandfather moved out a year later. Um, so she was stuck taking care of her mother, who had a severe incapacitating arthritis, and who was also emotionally abusive. So pretty much she, had a, she was forced to take care of her mother who was ungrateful and said horrible things to her. Um, so eventually she got out of that um, and she published her first short story in 1956 at age 27. Uh, she was the first... No, sorry. She was invited to the first Milford Science Fiction Writers Conference that year by... Cornbluth, and she was also the only woman invited to it. Uh, there she was... Sorry. There she conducted an emotional seance where she went into a trance and prophesied. So here, I'll read something that someone described. So, night remembered. We were grouped in a tight circle with our arms around each other, all the lights had been turned out except one dim one. It may have been a candle. Cyril was expressing his misery, and I began to sob, feeling as I did so that I was crying as his surrogate. We left the meeting with a feeling of closeness that went beyond friendship. The affection of the rest of us felt for each other remained undiminished for years. So, that was that experience. Um, so that was in 1957. So six years later, in 1963, she started writing in, so she started writing the physical universe as idea construction. Uh, so she started writing this document. Uh, she described it as, or the experience as, it was very domestic, very normal, very unpsychedelic. And then um, between one normal minute and the next, a fantastic avalanche of radical new ideas burst into my head with tremendous force. It was as if the physical world were ready, were, was really tissue paper thin, hiding infinite dimensions of reality, and I was flung through the tissue paper with a huge ripping sound. So she had this kind of crazy experience, and during that experience, she wrote this physical this book, the physical universe, as an idea construction. 
And after that, she and her husband started experimenting with a Ouija board where they started receiving messages from Seth. Um, Eventually, she was, during trances, taken over by Seth and wrote a series of books while being possessed by Seth. So there's this entire series of documents that she wrote. Um, I mean, it's published under her name, but it's like the books of Seth. Um, And for the last 21 years of her life, Roberts held ESP classes. I think like approximately like 1,500 ESP classes and trance sessions, both private and public, where she spoke on behalf of Seth. So she had this like crazy following. So psychic lady. I mean probably I mean actually none of it's real, but this was her experience. Um people have theorized that it could be because she had this like really abusive childhood that this was a way that she dealt with it also could be that after a certain amount of time she realized she could make money off of it um but anyway we'll read a short story by her uh the short story is the first communion which was first published in fantastic universe march of 1957 so i'll start that in a second First Communion by Jane Roberts Grown-ups were really strange. You couldn't tell them your dreams or your special secret fears. The First Communion by Jane Roberts Marietta was glad she wasn't a boy. She touched the white folds of her communion dress with wonder, feeling immediately sorry for Bobby who must wear blue pants and a white shirt. In the first place, pants weren't nearly as pretty as, and the boys all had to dress alike, but there were infinite varieties of white dresses, and hers was the nicest of any she'd seen. There was a veil also, white shoes, and a golden prayer book with a brand new holy cards to mark the mass. She eyed the communion dress longingly. Mommy, will I actually see God tomorrow? Miss Loomis smiled and looked up briefly from her sewing. I don't know that you'll actually see him, Marietta, but you'll know he's there. Well, how would she know it if she couldn't see him? Sister Claire said, we would if our hearts were pure. Her mother sighed. Sister Claire again, she said. I just hope she isn't leading you to expect too much. Now go outside and forget about it for a while. 
Marietta went out on the porch, pouting. Grown-ups sure were funny. Everyone had been telling her how important the First Communion was, and now Mommy told her to forget it. But Brother was on the steps. She sat down beside him with studied care, practicing, for tomorrow she would be a child of God, and must always be good and gentle and... and ladylike. Poor Bobby, she thought. His freckles were still there. Maybe St. Francis was too busy just now to be bothered, but there wasn't much time, and he prayed for them to be gone by tomorrow. Bobby? But he wouldn't look up. What's the matter? She asked. Nothing. She eyed him critically. There is so, she said. There is not. He stared, straightening straight ahead and waited a minute did you dream anything last night he asked finally sure he spun around about communion tomorrow going to heaven sure and you're not scared or nothing scared why Bobby Loomis of course not what's there to be scared of Bobby scowled I didn't say there was anything, so I just asked, so what? But Marietta looked at him with sudden astonishment. Why, you're scared, I can tell. Bobby's scared, Bobby's scared, she chanted, dancing around him on the steps. But he didn't get mad or anything, so she stopped. None of us are scared. She looked at him scornfully. And you're older. I'm only two years older, he yelled. It's not my fault. I was sick last time they had First Communion. Marietta frowned. You better be quiet, she warned. You're supposed to be nice from now on. Besides, her eyes sparkled with pride. You'll be the biggest boy there. Bobby eyed his sister with disgust. A lot you know. Girls don't know anything. Marching down the aisle with a bunch of six-year-old babies, the guys will laugh. What do you care? Marriott demanded. Besides, you'll be the last in line. The shortest kids go first. By then you'll know what to do and you won't be scared anymore. But Bobby ignored her. He threw a stone across the street then ambled over and inspected it with methodological care. When do you go? He asked, back at the porch. First, I'm the littlest, she said modestly, but she was the cutest girl. Everyone said so, with her long blonde curls and big eyes. That's what everyone said, just like that. You're first? Well, what did he look so worried for? It wasn't anything awful. Everyone wanted to be first. Bobby leaned forward and lowered his voice. Is anyone inside by the door? He asked. Marietta looked around. No. He pulled his arm around her and whispered in her ear. 
Listen, he said. Something screwy. Somebody was talking to me in my sleep last night, right in my room. So I remembered this morning. Somebody was whispering about tomorrow. Was that all? That was God, silly, she said. He speaks to everyone before communion. Sister Claire said so. Bobby eyed her defiantly. It was not God. I don't even think he'll be at church. Anyway, Billy's cousin is receiving her first communion in Albany the same time as we are. And that's 30 miles away. How's he going to be in both places at once? Boy, was he dumb. God is everywhere. That's the catechism says so, she chanted sing-song. But the thought startled her, and she eyed the empty spot beside her with sudden awe. Bobby? Bobby? You don't think he's there listening, do you? For a minute, Bobby's face grew white. Then he grabbed Marietta by the arm. Of course he's not. You don't see him, do you? Come on, out back, and play. But Marietta glanced back nervously, and Bobby steered her around back. You'll stay by me tomorrow, here, he said, and Marietta sighed with exaggerated patience. Okay, she said. If you want me to. The next morning, Sister Janurus stood at the head of the classroom. Now, she said, Sister Claire is ill and I'm taking charge of the class. So if I have any trouble remembering your names, just correct me, all right? Marietta eyed Bobby significantly. None shouldn't lie. And she knew Sister Claire wasn't sick. Last night, she and Bobby heard Mommy talking to the neighbors. They said that Sister Claire was over overzealous and that the children were overwrought. There, she remembered perfectly and how Sister Januaris was supposed to calm them down. You didn't even hear him. Nobody did, Marietta gasped. That was Bobby. Startled, she turned around. Bobby was crying, and Sister swept down the aisle. Bobby looked up at her. It wasn't God, he sobbed. Did you dream too? Sister was speaking very low. Marietta had to strain to hear her. Bobby gulped. I dreamed all right, but it wasn't God, he eyed Sister defiantly. It was somebody bad. Sister's mouth made a round O. What makes you say that? You can tell me. Here, she bent down. Whisper. Everyone in the room was quiet, listening, and Marietta sneaked closer. Bobby's eyes were wide and scared. He said I couldn't go with the others, that I was too old for, for training. And God wouldn't say that, would he? A couple of the girls heard and giggled. Sister turned and gave them the eye, and then she smiled at Bobby. You just were worried, being the oldest boy, she straightened up. But it's quite an honor to be the biggest, and I need you to help. 
Me and the others. There, do you feel better? Bobby said, yes, real low, then scowled over at Marietta. But she didn't care. She was glad, though, that it really hadn't been God that said he was going and he was too old. Poor Bobby, she thought. He feels bad because he still has freckles. Sister stood at the head of the class. Well, she said, I guess I'm the only one who didn't dream at all. Students regarded her with silent sympathy, and Marietta raised her hand. Maybe that's because you aren't going to receive First Communion. Doubtless you're right. Now everyone kneel down. We are going to say our father and forget all about our dreams and imaginings. The class knelt down. All right, sister said when prayers were done. Everyone follow me to the auditorium. Remember, quietly, no talking in the corridor. Say ejaculations to yourselves. My Jesus mercy will do one at a time. Marietta walked slowly, watched Mary Agnes's heels in front of her. My Jesus mercy, my Jesus mercy. But she just couldn't keep her mind on the prayer. They were going to get dressed now, and there was Mommy waiting with the lovely dress over her arm. Carefully, she changed clothes, but even then, her slip got all tangled up with Mary Agnes's. Be careful, her mother warned. Then, the veil. Oh, she circled round and round. Her skirt went out farther than anyone else's did. Please, keep the children quiet. The service is starting downstairs in the church. Please, mothers, calm the children down. It was sister's voice, and Marietta's mother made her sit down. Stay right here, she ordered. Well, I see how Bobby is coming along. But now Sister was calling for a show of hands. How many said their prayers last night with special care? She asked, and the hands of all 20 children raised excitedly up. Smiling, Sister Januaris motioned for order. Goodness, she said, so many all wanting to speak at once. But first, it's sister, not sister, all in one breath. All right, she looked at the seating chart. Betsy first. The little girl in, front, in the front seat popped up by her desk. I dreamed about God last night, she said, beginning breathlessly. He said that if I was real good, I'd go to heaven. We'd go way above the clouds, and that's fine, Sister cut, cut Betsy off short. Billy? In a great big ship, Billy said, finishing off Betsy's trend of thought. And I asked if I'd get a bike for my birthday, and God said yes. Marietta sat impatiently. She dreamed about God, too, but at the rate everyone was talking, she'd never get a chance. 
I saw God, she yelled, interrupting Billy and effectively bringing the rest of the class to a startling silence. You did not. That was Mary Agnes, and Marietta ignored her. I did too see him, she yelled triumphantly. He has a long white beard and was really tall. Sister was eyeing her, and she flushed. Well, it wasn't exactly true. Well, anyway, I heard him too, she amended. Bobby didn't look as nice as she did, but he looked nice. Squinting, Marietta got a look at his prayer book. It was black, not nearly as nice as the ones the girls got. You look nice, she said, but Bobby pulled her down beside him. I'll go home now if you do. Marietta stared at him in amazement. You mean now, before communion? That's silly, she began, but sister whisked Bobby away to the end of the line. Everything was ready. She held her breath, watching everyone take their places behind her. Maybe she was scared. There were an awful lot of people in the church. The music was starting. She got the cue from sister and slowly began marching up the aisle. Would God really come like everyone said? Really? And, they, and they'd all be children of God and go to heaven? Frowning, she remembered that sister said something this morning about that being symbolistic or something. Any, anyhow, that it didn't really happen. But the dream said it would. They'd go to heaven in a great big ship. That was funny. She po supposed she was supposed to stop at the altar railing, but something told her to go on. God was waiting, but out back, away from all the people. She hesitated, then looked back. It must be all right. Everyone was following. Sister was yelling, and Father John was trying to get in the sacristy door, but couldn't. Bobby was trying too. He'd better hurry. But there it was. The ship was huge. Everyone was running. They hadn't kept in line at all. She looked around. All the kids were inside, and suddenly the door closed. Where was Bobby? But there was a funny feeling in her stomach, and Mary Agnes was crying. So was Billy. She ran to the window. Sickening, she looked down at the crowd of people milling around the church. All grown-ups, but Bobby. But she wouldn't go any place without Bobby and Mommy. She ran to the door, but it wouldn't open. Then back to the window, but the church was gone. Mommy, she yelled frantically. Mommy, Mommy. That was First Communion by Jane Roberts, which was first published in Fantastic Universe, Volume 7, Number 3, in March of 1957. Huh, so that was an interesting story. Um, you guys don't get to see the pictures, but just to, you know, nail down the ending, um, there's a picture of some spaceships. So... 
if you didn't get it, kids were being, I don't know, having their, their brains infiltrated by aliens. And then at their first communion, they were taken by aliens. Um, so this has been Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. So this evening, um, I'm actually subbing for the Crypt Keeper. So I'm going to be on air until 10 p.m. So I'm going to be playing uh, music from mostly the 1960s electronic music. Uh, right now, we are listening to Prelude O Somil Face A um, off of the album Prelude O Somil uh, by Jean Jacques Perret. And so this piece was actually made for hospitals to calm down patients. Um, so this is your uh, elevator music 